Dream Star Institute presents DreamWork with Dr. Scott Sparrow. Episode 3, The Mysteries of Sleep Paralysis with Ryan Hurd. Today, uh, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Ryan Hurd. Ryan is author of Sleep Paralysis, and that's a book that has just been re-released in a second edition, right? Updated edition, Ryan, correct? Correct, yeah. Correct. And he's also a co-editor of another two-volume book, Lucid Dreaming, New Perspectives on Consciousness and Sleep. He's also the founder of dreamstudies.org, which is an immensely popular website, blog, but Ryan is well known in the field, very active on social media, so you'll find him everywhere you look. He's currently serving as the Director of Spiritual Development at the Unitarian Society of Germantown in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and as a lecturer in psychology and holistic studies at John F. Kennedy University, where you got your master's degree, right? That's right. That's right. And though now it's National University as of uh, uh, this month. Is that right? Yeah. Well, today, Ryan, uh, we're going to focus on one of many of your interests and mine too, and that is sleep paralysis, of which you are a recognized expert in the field. Anyway, I would really like to ask you some questions and get your perspective on this very fascinating and often disturbing experience. Ryan, what is sleep paralysis? So sleep paralysis, first and foremost, is a terrible medical term for a phenomena that's much more interesting and exciting than it sounds at first blush. (laughs) Uh, But the primary experience is awareness of the REM paralysis that we experience as falling asleep or waking up from, from sleep. And so that REM paralysis is natural and normal and we experience it every night without fanfare because we're unconscious. Uh, But what happens with awareness of sleep paralysis is that essentially the mind has woken up, we're aware of consensual reality and experiencing our bodies as we are lying in bed and still feeling that REM paralysis simultaneously. It can be quite disturbing if you don't know what it is. And it can be, it feels oppressive, in fact, and it can feel increasingly oppressive if you fight it. And so what, you know, the kind of classic, I'd say, syndrome, nightmare experience is that people feel like they're being held down while they're in paralysis and they, and you, we struggle to get away from it. And it just, the more we struggle, the more we actually feel the paralysis. And so the feelings, the intensity of being pushed or held or throttled even uh, get worse. And, and that, because we're still kind of in a dream state, we're in this hybrid state where it's REM thinking, dreaming thinking is still occurring. It's very easy to basically just spiral into intense emotionality. Fear becomes um, like death anxiety. And, it, and then there's the visions, right? And so then there's the hypnagogic hallucinations that come with it for some people. The vision uh, of, of a person or a thing or sometimes a monster in the space, the feeling of a sensed presence, which can be seen or unseen. Uh, And in the most sort of, I think the supernatural assault traditions, when this all kind of comes together is, is that this vision is a malevolent force or entity or creature or monster, ghost, what have you, that is actually responsible for the 
oppression and is attacking the dreamer. And the dreamer is a helpless victim. Uh, and they can, it can even be um, sexual molestation occurring. So it's very bodily. It's, it's, it's very intense, very realistic. And I think this is the part that is difficult to describe unless one's experienced it is how clear it feels like we're awake and aware because we're in a lucid state of mind where our consciousness, our meta-awareness is similar to that in the waking world. So I know that I'm sleeping in my bed, and yet there's a creature on me. And that cognitive dissonance makes it even more intense, more scary, and people, they lose sleep. So that's, that, is the, that is the experience in a nutshell. It does sound like um, that fear is a big component. And then what is the phrase? The only thing to fear is fear itself. It seems like fear is a big contributor to the downside quality of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so, and the good news piece of this is that if one can work on managing fear and moving past fear, uh, letting go, then, then the experience diminishes in intensity. That's the poison fruit, basically, is like one can either fight against it and it becomes more intense or surrender to it, which paradoxically can lead to other experiences. And that's the, the side that a lot of people are unaware of, is, is that sleep paralysis is also a gateway to other kinds of extraordinary sleep-related experiences, like out-of-body experiences or straight lucid dreaming, where we go back into the dream completely, but maintain that awareness, that self-awareness that this is a, a vision, this is a dream state. It does sound it's like it's one of those transitional experiences they talk about in the East, where, whereby a person doesn't understand maybe that they're actually headed somewhere good, but the initial symptoms seem very distressing, like, you know, another type of transitional experience is what involuntary body movements, uh, energy, zaps, things like that, excessive emotionality. So it seems like sleep paralysis is one of those in-between experiences that people get kind of caught up in, in their fear and don't realize that they're actually headed somewhere, maybe uh, with the right uh, belief system and attitude. Uh, yeah, that's, that's it. You know, a, a metaphor that's been used by a lot of people, not just me, is this idea of getting stuck in a threshold. Threshold. Uh, and so we're, you know, we're at this portal to all these amazing, extraordinary worlds. But if we're kind of unaccustomed to that, uninitiated to these extraordinary experiences, what comes up is fear. And of course, the identification of these intense feelings. And then comes all this stuff, which you're talking about, expectation, cultural beliefs, especially religious beliefs and kind yeah. of the core existentials. I guess you have to be concerned about who you share it with because some people would applaud and say, wow, that's cool. And other people would want to commit you or maybe want to exercise the demon or whatever they think is uh, dis distressing you, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of taboo around this experience and has been for a very long time. Um, there's, and I think for good reason, there's people who have literally been burned at the stake for having sleep paralysis experiences for consorting with demons mm -hmm. um, there's you know some pretty good evidence that some of the experiences of the salem witch trials were related to i think it was was it Math malthus i can't remember the name of one of the prosecutors who had a vision a sleep paralysis vision of one of the young women who came as a alluring yet demonic figure to his bedside and then, so he had a sleep paralysis hypnagogic experience and burned her at the stake. Uh, so, so both sides of that, and there's, um, 
and all around the world, yeah, so many taboos, especially when you move into the sexual content, which is can be very disturbing as well as pleasurable. So lots of people experience having orgasms and pleasure and ecstasies that at the same time, like, I'm not sure who is doing this, where are these feelings coming from, feeling the feeling of paralysis existing. So there's this very uncomfortable terror and bliss that happens that's difficult to parse. Mm-hmm. So there's taboos wrapped in taboos, basically. I once worked with a nun in psychotherapy and she had a sleep paralysis experience where a man walked or walked into the bedroom and stood by her bed. I think that's pretty classic, isn't it? But he had a hood on. She heard him say, I want your heart. So she woke up in terror thinking he was going to tear it out of her chest and then realized that perhaps it was Christ or at least uh, some embodiment of higher power wanting a fuller commitment from her. So it can really go either way, can't it? That's really interesting. What a what a fabulous story. Yeah, I mean, just like lucid dreams, one can kind of interpret the experience as it occurs, which is helpful for transitioning away from fear and sort of reminding oneself, you know, this is something that I tell folks is to have a very simple mantra such as this is sleep paralysis, this is natural, mm-hmm. I'm safe. You know, that kind of um, languaging, because when we can breathe into that ambiguity and become curious, the experience itself begins to shift. The ominous figure who we don't see at first will materialize and not be a demon, but maybe your, you know, long dead family dog coming to visit or a venerable ancestor or a a, a religious figure, a renowned religious figure who comes to, to perform a healing or an angel. And so there's the full spectrum is tremendous powerful and tied to transcendental experience as well as healing and you know uncanny information learning things having new yeah insight it it sounds like it would be really a good idea to have a clear intention you mentioned having a mantra but having a clear set of intentions especially if this happens fairly regularly because then instead of it kind of overtaking you and getting your fears going, you can be ready with your battery of uh, exercises and mindsets that can set it up properly, right? And really facilitate a deep experience for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of the lessons from lucid dreaming about how to really catapult, you know, using retrospective memory, remembering an intention, all those things can be used in these as well. And because lucid dreamers do tend to experience sleep paralysis more because they tend to be altering their sleep patterns, waking up in the middle of the night, going back to sleep, that can trigger sleep paralysis in some people. And it's a very, you know, it's a very short lived thing. It can be just 10 seconds or longer for most people, in which case it's called isolated sleep paralysis. And it's just a sleep symptom. But I do have to say that there's quite a few people who experience it in a much harsher sense, people who have um, narcolepsy, sleep Mm -hmm. apnea, or even other sort of secondary sleep disorders that are related to things like diabetes or other kind of health health issues, then the sleep paralysis is a symptom of those maladies and they can suffer for half an hour. It's almost stuck like a cataplexic incident and it's very difficult for them and and there's treatments there are pharmaceutical treatments as well that that help with these and most of those are related to disturbing REM sleep basically and um, I see so you have fewer dreams perhaps as well as a consequence of taking medication for sleep paralysis right so there's a cost 
But there is an ex excessive version that's not healthy and not pleasant. And you, you might need to counteract for that at least, huh? Yeah, and also, you know, folks, sleep paralysis has a um, pretty strong correlation with trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as sort of all the sociological markers for anxiety and social stress. Poverty, um, environmental racism, African-American populations suffer in greater, greater context too. And so there's a lot of sociological and experience-based, you know, kind of entry points into the phenomena. And yeah, I absolutely, there's no shoulds, like you should stay in it and learn how to fly. No, that's not like the answer yeah. at all. Some people need to sleep. They yeah. need to, they, it needs to be incorporated into a, a healing modality that's bigger than just sleep paralysis. It seems like we're talking about an overall issue of uh, dissociation. Uh, being able to pull away from body-based awareness. And that can be very constructive if you're having a mystical experience or having some kind of higher consciousness experience, or it can be very distressing if you experience derealization or depersonalization and have a sense of not being connected with your own body during the day. So it seems like it cuts either way. You know, uh, some form of dissociation can be can contribute to lucid dreaming or constructive sleep paralysis, or it can be way, way too much because of trauma that has promoted this kind of avoidance of being fully present. So I see it as a kind of a one issue that takes on many different forms, both positive and not so. What do you think? Yeah, I think, yeah, you know, it's a double-edged sword. So the that thin boundariedness, I think, plays a role. Thin boundaries. Thin boundaries. Um, People who who ha have sleep paralysis are more likely to have other kinds of extraordinary experience, such as prophetic dream, perhaps, or mm -hmm. an ancestral visitation, or lots of deja vu experiences. Just different, you know, these different kind of other experiences, as well as there's a, a correlation with paranormal beliefs. Although that's a little that's interesting. That's comes from a few different studies, and some studies are suggesting that those people who have paranormal beliefs also suffer more from sleep paralysis like they have negative experiences involving ghosts and hauntings you would expect um, the opposite wouldn't you i mean if they believe in such things it seems like they would welcome such things and that's yeah this is there's this is i would love to puzzle into that a little bit because what i have found and this is from my own experience and from talking to other people who have a lot of these experiences too is, is that well if you have paranormal beliefs then you also know about doing things such as psychic self-defense or different kinds of ways of protecting the self and that's you know and it's all it's all like ego kind of psychology basically that's used in a paranormal context but there's self-protection mechanisms that work uh prayer mantras thinking about uh, an esteemed figure of light or love you know resetting expectation having a cross or another sort of sacred symbol or a liminal object that holds power. These things help individuals. And, and of course, it's culturally nuanced and it's not necessarily like this kind of object works and this doesn't. Although, although there is some kind of cool things over the, the years, what I've discovered about liminal objects is that iron, for instance, is used cross-culturally as a protective ghost warding object, certain kinds of stones. And so there's like, you know, you can really kind of rabbit hole into all that lore about talismans and does directly relate to sleep paralysis. I, I remember doing some research a few years ago in a seminary library and coming across a bunch of really fascinating 
information about Babylonian amulets. Uh, so we're, we're talking about like 400 BCE or so that were used, inscribed in Aramaic. And the translation has to do with keeping Lilith away, you know, and Lilith, don't come to my house. You're banished from my house tonight. And Lilith is a particular demoness that would come to, um, in this tradition, to come and have sex with men and steal their sperm and make demon babies, as you do. And this is very much tied to sleep paralysis. There's even, there's even some texts from this era discussing how if men sleep alone at night, it's more likely to, to a Lilith demon will come. And, and we know this in modern contexts that people who sleep alone at night when they're unaccustomed to that, especially if they're sleeping in unusual places, places where they might feel existentially more, right, vulnerable, tend to have sleep paralysis in, in those contexts. And so there's some really interesting historical things that I think that probably we've just kind of, yeah, the tip of the iceberg with this stuff in terms of sleep paralysis and its relationship to mysticism and protection Fascinating. I guess there's a big issue that we could go on and on about, about whether there are properties of such amulets or crystals or uh, prayers that are objective in some sense, or whether it's solely based on the belief of the individual. Uh, one experience comes to mind in particular of uh, Robert Monroe, who was, as you know, really famous for having out-of-body experiences. But he would sometimes encounter demons, or at least very kind of bad actors. And on one occasion when he was being attacked by them, he decided to pray. He'd never prayed before in his life. He just decided to try and it didn't work at all, he said. <laughs> and uh, you have to maybe wonder whether it was because he really didn't believe in it or hadn't actually built any kind of relationship to that particular amulet or prayer or whatever. Uh, but it is, it's a big question how philosophically and empirically whether it's all about psychology or, or somewhat about uh, objective properties of words or objects. Yeah, that, I, I love that that area of inquiry. And I think that household archaeology might have some, some secrets that we could learn, especially when it comes to the, the study of apotraic objects, you know, the objects that repel fear, basically. I see. Uh -huh. And so... For instance, stockings or, or boots put by the chimney to trap witches, witch traps, or the practice in um, medieval Europe of burying a uh, horse skull beneath the floorboards was used as, as a liminal object. Or, or even like we just came out of the Christmas season, so wreaths on the doorway. Yes. Uh, wreath is, it's apotropaic. It is, it's repelling uh, spirits, garlands do the same things, red doors, you know, uh, really? we, we have these kind of things all over. Well, when it comes to um, dreams and sleep paralysis, I know you and I have talked before about how dreams seem to be co-created rather than fixed from the outset. You know, the traditional view is the unconscious creates the dream and you receive it and then you analyze the, the received dream as if it... Um, was somehow fixed from the outset. You know, my approach, and I think your approach too, has been to see the dream as unfolding in real time and coalescing as a result of the dream or dream interactive process. Now, what you talk about in sleep paralysis seems to be a co-created experience where your fears and your expectations really have a lot to do with the form of the experience, 
the, the way the individual or the characters appear, if they show up, your interpretation of the, whether it's positive or negative. And I'm wondering whether you see sleep paralysis and dreams as both being kind of unfolding in real time as a relational event. How do you see that? Yeah, very much so. Uh, I think that a lot of the, the lessons we've learned from lucid dreaming apply to the sleep paralysis experience. Uh, and, and those lessons are that our expectation matters, that our unconscious beliefs are, that are kind of behind our thoughts matter, and that the moment can shift in an instant. And so when we change our focus of our attention, and our consciousness moves, the dream moves. And, and so a dream is a dance, right? A dream is a, it's play. I love the way Kelly Bulkley talks about dream as yes. play mm -hmm. because it takes out some of that seriousness. It is play and it is play because it's dealing with possibilities and, and we're untethered a little bit. And so what happens is, is that we have things come up and we have reactions and our reactions cause other things to come up and things go deeper, things span out. And, and it's always shifting and it's always moving. So a, a dream is not given. It's not, yeah, it's, it's not a message in my mind as something that needs to be read by the dreamer, but can be seen as our unfolding reaction to an ability to handle that dance in that moment. And of course, that the way that we handle things differs from moment to moment. And, and we just have to we have to forgive ourselves a lot and realize, hey, I'm not who I am in waking life in my dream. I'm actually sort of a different construct too. Uh, and so this is still a dream. But in sleep paralysis, absolutely. And this is something that I think a lot of people don't get is, is that if we manage to interrupt the script of I'm a victim here, I'm being paralyzed, I'm being held down and move away from fear realize that we are in control of our breath which is a huge fear often in for for people who are experiencing this and that as a dream experience and a visionary experience that i cannot be harmed and then a natural curiosity arises because that because we have that lucid consciousness that this is this is something that's unfolding in front of me and so we have that meta awareness that metacognition and so when the emotionality is kind of rolled back and we're able to have a little more objective objectivity about about our interaction that's unfolding, then it gets interesting. Then then the content changes, the script changes, and the the figures in front of us change. They they literally transform. You know, uh, in my previous podcast, I talked about how the co-creative paradigm gives rise to the idea of uh, that the dream is going somewhere, that it's developing, and that maybe not all dreams, but quite a few dreams seem to be almost initiations where when you look back on what happened, you realize, oh my gosh, it was kind of a test. I was being given an opportunity to respond to this situation that's been longstanding and I failed again and I wish I could do better next time. And over time, when I see a series of dreams, quite often I see the dreamer evolving in relationship to that issue or whatever the problematic issue is or the opportunity that they haven't really been able to embrace. And so I'm wondering whether you have a sense of that, like we're going somewhere, you know, even in the sleep paralysis experience, that it's there for some kind of uh, developmental test to give the, op the person the opportunity to 
to respond in a new way to something that perhaps has been a longstanding issue. What do you think about that? I think that that, that perspective absolutely is at, is at home in the sleep paralysis experience. And there's a million things that are coming up for me, but just for one thing, yeah, this interesting idea of the, of the failed initiation, which sounds kind of harsh, right? It does. Yeah. Um, but, but when we roll it back, I remember that, that it's playful at the same time. Yeah, right. It's like, don't worry, you'll have another, you'll have another chance to fail this initiation later. Right. So, so it sort of takes the pressure off. This is the one chance to, to get this right. Um, right. There's no right. Who's going to, yeah. Who's judging here, right? <laughs> so, so once we kind of let that that sort of sensor go, yeah, um, and let the experience unfold, yeah, different things. Different people may have have different things they're working with. Uncomfort with ambiguity, discomfort with um, discomfort with pain. I mean, so sleep paralysis sometimes can can be painful, and and by focusing where the pain is, it can dissolve or it can turn into into pleasure. It's it's energetic because you know we're not just a brain sleeping. It's the the whole dream body is you know which is sort of mapped onto the waking body, the physical body. It's it's all it's all working. And so, and so there can be some really interesting things going on there. And then the out-of-body experience, which brings up a lot of fears for people about being untethered, you know, because that's what it, it's a bodily metaphor, right. Of, of, of drifting away and depersonalization, like you mentioned. Yes. Um, What, how can we have a sure sense of self as we float untethered in the multiverse and, and, and become comfortable with that, that level of uncertainty or even of infinite smallness. I mean, so there's so many, yeah, there's so many interesting, I'd, I'd say, you know, existential concerns, religious concerns, and, they, and it really does come back to these, I think, core belief structures that we're all working through as humans. And we've all kind of got our own little flavor that we're working through. Very fascinating, right? I, um, there's so much to explore here. It seems like the sleep paralysis is, like you said, a portal or a threshold that opens up to a variety of significant uh, forms of inquiry and experiences, etc. So I really appreciate your coming and talking about this uh, fascinating experience. And I hope that some of our listeners will be relieved uh, by what you've said. I think they will be by what you said, but also by your book. Your book is very reassuring, very sophisticated in its view of the phenomenon. So uh, thanks for coming, and I hope we can get together again and talk about some of the other topics that fascinate us. Sounds great, Scott. I'd love to come back.